Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 15, To the Strongest, the First and Second Wars of the Diadohoi. In our last episode, we covered the immediate aftermath of Alexander the Great's death. Though the Macedonian Empire was still united on paper, open insurrection from the Greeks and political intrigue by the successors of Alexander had begun to tear it into the seams. Two main groups now vied for control of the empire. An alliance of Antipater, Craterus, Antigonus in Macedon, and Ptolemy in Egypt had formed against the ambitious Perdiccas, who had control of the heartland of the Asian satrapies in Babylon. And it is here where the first war of the Diodohoi will begin. Antipater and Craterus had already begun their preparations for war. They had decided to strike first in Asia, at the head of a fresh Macedonian army crossing the Hellespont into Asia Minor in 320 BC. And before even stepping onto Asian soil, the satrapies of Caria and Lydia had defected to Antigonus. Ptolemy would himself attempt to shore up the defenses of Egypt, with the expectation that an invasion of the satrapy was inevitable. The army of Perdiccas was not entirely under his command, as was made clear with the rioting it did in Babylon upon finding out about the murder of Sinane, a member of the Argiot house. It seems that the odds were stacked against Perdiccas. Despite everything, Perdiccas was not alone. Standing by him was Eumenes of Cardia, that plucky little Greek secretary-turned-general. It was he who had gained the trust of Perdiccas, and was raised to a position of high regard. With his blessing, Perdiccas made Eumenes the head of an army, numbering around 20,000, to halt the progress of Craterus, who had split from Antipater to enter Cappadocia in eastern Asia Minor. He also provided two lieutenants to assist, Alcatus, a brother of Perdiccas, and a man named Neoptolemus, a former officer of Alexander. This would be a mistake, since Neoptolemus had been colluding with Antipater for quite a number of months by now, and really disliked Eumenes, and Alcatus refused to take troops against the popular and talented Craterus. As ever, the future for Eumenes looked grim. It was the best Perdiccas could do, for he would take his troops to Egypt and deal with the insolent Ptolemy on his own turf. Eumenes then made the journey to Cappadocia, fearing that the Macedonians serving under him would desert once they realized that they were to go against Craterus, an army favorite. On top of it all, in May of 320, Neoptolemus had decided to strike against Eumenes, taking pro-Craterus troops and setting them against the pro-Eumenes forces. The Greek had suspected Neoptolemus's motives long before, though, and had already formed a plan in case the Macedonian had tried anything funny. Eumenes sent his trained cavalry crashing into the line of the imposing infantry, scattering them and leaving Neoptolemus nearly naked, who fled the, in the chaos to the camp of Craterus and Antipater. The rest of the Macedonian survivors were then made to swear an oath of loyalty to Eumenes. This would not be the last time betrayal would bother the Greek, and in fact, it would be deadly. In the wake of this victory, an embassy on behalf of Antipater and Craterus was sent to the camp of Eumenes. They urged the Greek to stop supporting the pretender in Babylon and join them in the place of honor and able to retain his personal satrapies in Cappadocia and Paphlagonia. Eumenes rejected this proposal, only willing to talk peace if both Craterus, whom he respected, and Perdiccas were able to come to terms, also noting that Antipater was not likely to uphold his end of the bargain. Eumenes' loyalty to Perdiccas is impressive, if foolish. To say that it was out of ambition or self-interest that had Eumenes cast his lot with Babylon is not entirely true. Sure, he was not on good terms with Antipater, 
but he ultimately sought to preserve harmony in the empire. Perdiccas was declared protector of the kingship, and at the very least would keep the son of Alexander the Great alive, for the time being, lest any foul intentions from the other successors. Also, maybe it was the modicum of respect that Eumenes received from Perdiccas that ensured his loyalty. As a former Greek ahead of a Macedonian army, he was never really treated fairly despite being a close boyhood friend of Alexander. Greeks were the subjects of Macedon, not their equals, despite any propaganda telling them otherwise. Disappointed at the response of Eumenes, Craterus had made way for battle. Craterus's forces numbered around 20,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry, and though Eumenes had nearly an equal number, the quality of the infantry was suspect. Craterus had hardened veterans from the Alexander campaigns, while Eumenes was stuck with a large portion of mercenaries for hire. But the cavalry formed during Eumenes' earlier campaigns in Cappadocia were both loyal and well-trained, as could be seen with his earlier battle against Neoptolemus. The night before battle, Eumenes lay stressed in his cot, wondering how in the world was he going to go against Craterus, the premier general under Alexander. In the Sanctuary of Sleep, uh, according to Plutarch, a dream visited Eumenes. Two phalanxes, each led by an Alexander, were fighting against one another. One side was supported by the goddess Athena, the other, the goddess of the harvest Demeter. The Alexander Demeter army was victorious, and Eumenes had his inspiration. He was emboldened by spies reporting that the call sign of Craterus' army was Alexander Athena. And so he told his troops, still unaware of who they fought, to put garlands of wheat on themselves to honor the goddess. The two sides then lined up against one another. Craterus would command the right wing, while Neoptolemus, still itching for a rematch with that upstart Greekling, would take the left. Eumenes himself would command the right flank to deal with Neoptolemus, but ordered that a strike team of cavalry should be sent against Craterus, lest any of his Macedonians recognize the general in the middle of the battle and decide just to shift sides. The battle had begun. Craterus and Eumenes carried their cavalry wings away from the main body of the phalanxes, both seeking to emulate Alexander's tried-and-true tactic of using the phalanx as an anvil and encircling the enemy forces with the cavalry as a hammer. Upon getting sight of Craterus, the strike team descended upon the general. The collision of cavalry shattered their spears, and it devolved into a melee with their swords. Despite the shock of the attack, and despite realizing that Neoptolemus' claim that the Macedonians had no loyalty to Eumenes was an outright lie, he fought bravely onwards. In the melee, a lone soldier managed to pierce Craterus' side and threw him off his horse. Bleeding and barely able to move, Craterus tried to scramble back up but was then ingloriously trampled to death in the chaos. On the other end of the battlefield, Eumenes had led his forces against Neoptolemus. Recognizing one another's armor and emblems, they launched themselves at one another, literally. Forgoing any sort of jousting session, the Greek and Macedonian let go of their horses and grappled on top of their mounts, before falling to the ground. Dazed, Eumenes managed to stagger up and hamstring Neoptolemus. The Macedonian was effectively paralyzed, his legs giving way to his body. But the adrenaline gave him the strength to wield his sword, and he stabbed the Greek in the thighs and the arms, until Eumenes finally ended his life with a neck wound. When the army of Craterus learned of their commander's deaths, they routed in panic, and the battle was effectively over. 
Eumenes managed to find the body of Craterus among the dust and blood, and softly wept over his friend's body. Eumenes had achieved victory, raising both the rank and file's admiration for him as a commander in his bravery on the battlefield and envy on behalf of the Macedonian elite. It was amazing that Eumenes was able to defeat a favorite like Craterus. One wonders what Perdiccas would have thought of his subordinate's victory, but events had already transpired in Egypt that would change the playing field of the empire. The campaign against Ptolemy was expected to be short and sweet. As Perdiccas soon found out, it was nothing short of a disaster. Egypt was filled with more soldiers than what was expected, since Ptolemy wisely used the money he quote-unquote found, summing up to about 8,000 talents worth of silver, in order to bolster his ranks with mercenaries. The army of Perdiccas had marched their way down the Mediterranean into Egypt, camping near the city of Pelusium on the eastern Nile Delta in July of 321. Attempting to ford the river, a dam nearly broke and washed away his progress. It also washed away any remaining loyalty of some of his men, who were fed up with the heavy-handedness that Perdiccas was ruling with, and they went over to Ptolemy's side. Finding out Ptolemy's position at a place known as the Fort of the Camels, Perdiccas ordered his troops to be set against the fortress. He tried using his war elephants to break down the palisades of the walls, but Ptolemy counteracted using the advantage of height and was able to spear the Mahouts and later caused Perdiccas to retire back to his camps, at least for the time being. That night, Perdiccas tried to lead a crossing of the Nile River, but the weight of the elephants and horses upstream caused the soil of a canal to erode away, causing a flood which swept away many poor souls down the river towards a den of Nile crocodiles. I need go no further. So, things were in dire straits. The river incident cost about 2,000 lives, they were running out of food, and it was hot and dusty. To say that the army was happy about this turn of events is unlikely. The following night, a number of officers, including a Greek and former bodyguard of Alexander named Python, and, most importantly, a companion cavalry officer named Seleucus, approached Perdiccas in his tent and stabbed the would-be king to death. The attempt at gaining control of the empire by Perdiccas was rather short-lived. In many ways, his career is rather impressive, and he probably was the number one candidate for the throne following Alexander's death, but his style of rule left much to be desired. Diodorus refers to Perdiccas as a man of blood, a man who used fear and intimidation to make sure that he was king by proxy. The public execution of Meliager and the other supporters of Philip Aridaeus, the disrespect against Craterus, an army favorite, and the slights against the Argead house, such as the death of Sinane, whether it is his fault or not. Alexander certainly had his moments of brutal rule, but he carried himself with victory and generosity towards his men. Perdiccas, however, did not. The morning after the assassination, Ptolemy was welcomed into camp with great fanfare and approached the two kings, Philip and Alexander IV, who were brought along with Perdiccas. In an ironic twist, news of the victory of Eumenes in Cappadocia and the death of Craterus, news that would probably have saved Perdiccas' life for the time being, was received by Ptolemy and Antipater. They immediately declared Eumenes an enemy of the state and put to death many of the pro-Perdican supporters. 
Python and Aridaeus, no, not Philip Aridaeus, were made the temporary protectors of the kings. A call was sent out to the remaining successors that they should all reconvene in Syria, at the city known as Triparadisius. And it is here that the map of the empire will be redrawn yet again. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Life is action-packed, and finding time to fit in leisurely reading is difficult. When I need to listen to my favorite books, or do research for the show while I'm at the gym or sitting in traffic, Audible makes it easy to access an unparalleled selection of audiobooks, original shows, and more, right at my fingertips. As a special offer for listeners of the show, Audible is currently offering a 30-day free trial membership, along with a free credit to the book of your choice to keep. With the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War right around the corner, I'd like to recommend A World Undone, The Story of the Great War by G.J. Meyer. Covering everything from grand strategy to trench art to life on the home front, it's probably the best comprehensive yet humanizing one-volume work on the war to end all wars. To get this book for free and to find out more, go to audibletrial.com forward slash Hellenistic Age Podcast. That's audibletrial.com forward slash Hellenistic Age Podcast and get started today. The soon-to-be-called Partition of Triparadisus was about as tumultuous as the Partition of Babylon two years earlier. Things were made complicated by one scorned queen, Eurydice II, formerly known as Adea, daughter of Sinane. We don't know much about her before Perdiccas' death, but it is seemingly apparent that she had bided her time to wait until Perdiccas would be out of the picture, probably assuming that he had a hand in her mother's death, and would also want her dead too if she stepped out of line. Eurydice had married Philip Aridaeus, a match that was regarded by the ancients as comically lopsided. Clearly, she wore the pants in the relationship, despite Macedonians never wearing pants. Given her descent of the Argeid house and her marriage to Philip Aridaeus, she was viewed favorably by the Macedonian army, and these altogether gave her the confidence to make a bid for power at the tender age of only 16 years old. She told the anti-Perdican coalition that Aridaeus and Python would not do anything without her permission since she was queen. This was not remotely amusing to the other Diadohoi, who told her that she had no business in the affairs of politics. And once Antigonus and Antipater had arrived in Triparadisus, Antigonus took the position of commander-in-chief instead. Eurydice was not amused by this either, and she was already stirring up the Macedonian rank and file by accusing Antipater of withholding money from the troops. According to Arian, Antipater reportedly was almost lynched, and it took the entire defense of Seleucus and Antigonus to calm the soldiers down. Having given Eurydice a stern lecturing, the remaining marshals of the empire got together to come to terms with how the empire was going to be managed in the wake of Perdiccas and Craterus' death. Ptolemy, concerned with consolidating his territories and being left alone, merely requested to keep Egypt and whatever lands that could be, quote, taken by the spear probably referring to Syria and Phoenicia, which he would later take over. Antipater was to be declared standing regent, with Antigonus being given the title Royal General of Asia, and given the job of taking care of Eumenes and whatever remaining pro-Perdican forces remained in the empire. And for assistance, he would be given Cassander, son of Antipater, as a subordinate officer. For his services in killing the would-be tyrant, Seleucus, soon to be known as Seleucus I Nicator, would be given Babylon as a prize. 
Lysimachus, who I have mentioned little about, would remain in control of Thrace. While not as radical as the partition of Babylon, the conference at Triparadisus was interesting because it would essentially foreshadow the general outlines of the Hellenistic, quote, Big Three, Ptolemy in Egypt, Seleucus in Babylon, and Antigonus near Macedon. Seleucus receiving Babylon seemed like a peripheral position at the time, but he had risen from relative obscurity and remained an underdog of sorts. But when the dust settles, it is he who walks out with the largest piece of the pie. It also brings forth other new members onto the stage, men who would play dominant roles for the next rounds of the conflict. Cassander, son of Antipater, was introduced in episode 13 when he came to Babylon to serve Alexander, a rather unruly character who annoyed Alexander to the point of the latter bashing his head against a wall, he played an obscure part in the immediate aftermath of the king's death. This recent posting to serve Antigonus was not to Cassander's pleasure. Antipater was old, hitting roughly 80 years now, and close to death. Once the old regent finally goes, Cassander wanted to be near the center of the action. The other would be a marriage of Antipater's daughter Philia, formerly married to Craterus. She was given the hand of Antigonus's 17-year-old son, Demetrius, soon to be known as Demetrius I Polyarchites. Demetrius would be of the new generation, those who did not serve with Alexander, and thus viewed him less as a man and more like a god. Plutarch also penned a life of Demetrius, comparing him to the Roman Mark Antony, with the implication that he could have become the worthy successor of Alexander, but his personal vices would get in the way. Anyways, I I'm getting off track on this. As Strategos of Asia, Antigonus was to lead an army in 320 BC against the remaining pro-Perdican forces, now considered rebels, and most of all, capture Eumenes, who was still somewhere in Cappadocia. Fortunately for Antigonus, the rebels were themselves divided. Alcatus, the brother of Perdiccas, refused to play subordinate to Eumenes, and was outperforming his own operations. Some of the soldiers under Eumenes' command attempted to mutiny but were put down, and the Greek had to buy loyalty from his troops with gifts and money. It is suspected that Eumenes knew how precarious his standing was, since he tried traveling to Sardis to either court or gain the favor of Cleopatra, the daughter of Olympias. In addition, when Antigonus and Eumenes met on the field in Cappadocia, a sizable number of cavalry had defected mid-battle, resulting in a defeat for the rebels. The rest of the year was spent by Eumenes and his remaining forces trapped in a mountain fortress at Nora in Armenia. It was cold, exceedingly cramped to the point where Eumenes ordered forced drill marches lest his men or horses, numbering around 600 at most, would atrophy under the weight. It was well stocked though, with food and other supplies, and its mountainous position would prove difficult to besiege. Initially, Antigonus tried to parley with Eumenes, calling upon their old friendship. This was soured by Antigonus' insistence that the Greek must address him as a superior. Eumenes, according to Plutarch, responded, quote, I regard no man as my superior, so long as I am the master of my sword. Incensed, Antigonus left a sizable force to stand guard and besiege the fortress, while he had left to deal with the forces of Alcatus. Alcatus attempted to make a stand, but was resoundingly defeated in battle, and later committed suicide rather than be captured. With the last member of Perdiccas' family dead, the First War of the Diodohoi was effectively over. It was 319 BC. The death of Perdiccas and the settlement of Triparadisus effectively ended the unity of the empire. It was now comprised of petty proto-kingdoms manned by warlords. 
Ptolemy was the prime example, who was preoccupied with keeping his little share in Egypt rather than bothering to take part in the larger politics of the world around him, unless it directly impacting his own holdings. It seems unlikely that anyone would try to stop the sundering of the empire, doesn't it? In the autumn of 319, Antipater had died at the age of 78 in Macedon. Cassander seemed the natural choice for a successor, but in fact, Antipater chose a man named Polyperchon to take the mantle of protector of the kings. Polyperchon was a long-serving officer in the army, but was considered a conservative and never was in the fold of Alexander. He was a close friend of Antipater, though, and was somewhat competent, at least in his political abilities. In addition to taking the position, he was to be served by Cassander in the position of Chiliarch, second-in-command. Cassander was really not pleased by this turn of events, fully expecting to be given the title since he was Antipater's flesh and blood. So immediately, he turned to plotting, trying to feel out the leading Macedonians and whether their support could be potentially counted upon. Cassander knew he had work to do. Someone who was pleased by the death of the old regent was Olympius who hated and feuded with Antipater for years, to the point of having to return to her native Epirus in a self-imposed exile. The refusal of Cassander was also of great joy to her, since she implicitly believed that somehow Cassander had a hand in Alexander's death. Listen to episode 13 if you want to hear more about this whole rationale. And if Cassander got into power, her grandson and daughter-in-law were next. Polyperkin also made a desirable offer to Olympias return to Macedon, and take the guardianship of Alexander IV, her grandchild, and have a public presence. This was a move by Polyperkin to strengthen his ties to the Argeid house, or at least to Alexander IV. Despite the enticing offer, Olympias chose to wait it out on the advice of Eumenes, who she was very close to, probably under the assumption that Macedon was going to be a whirlwind of activity. How right she was. The rest of the world quickly got word of Antipater's death and began to react accordingly. As Strategos of Asia, Antigonus was in command of an enormous army, bolstered by defectors from Eumenes' camp. With Antipater dead, he felt no personal loyalty to Polyperchon, and with enough military might, he started to become an island unto himself. He started by eliminating and replacing satraps more inclined to him in Asia Minor, capturing about 600 towns worth of treasure for his own personal use. He also entered an alliance with Cassander, who sought military aid, and Antigonus joined this union under the assumption that Cassander would provide a good distraction to Polyperchon while he fulfilled his own ambitions. This descent from Antigonus and the flight of Cassander into Asia heavily concerned Polyperchon, who was feeling increasingly alone with the rumor of Ptolemy's complicity in Cassander's plans. With fewer and fewer supporters that remained loyal to the throne of Macedon, Polyperchon turned to Eumenes for help. He offered to make the Greek Strategos of Asia, effectively usurping Antigonus's title, and also planned to give him control of the Argriaspids, also known as the Silver Shields, some of the finest soldiers in the entire empire. So, through an intermediary, Antigonus had negotiated a release of Eumenes from Nora, under the assumption that Eumenes would swear an oath of fealty to Antigonus. Much to his anger, Eumenes actually changed the words around the oath, swearing it to the kings of Macedon, Olympias, and only referring to Antigonus as protector of the kings. This was deemed acceptable to the officer's presence, and Eumenes was allowed to escape. 
In addition to courting Eumenes, Polyperchon had felt uncomfortable in the position of Greece, where Cassander was working many of the cities to his side, at one point establishing a base of power at Athens. To inaugurate the opening of the Second War of the Diadochoi in the year 318, Polyperchon campaigned unsuccessfully in Greece, facing disaster after disaster, especially in the city of Megalopolis, where he was soundly beaten by the forces of Cassander. Returning to Macedon, things were already afoot. Eurydice II, forced yet again at the settlement of Triparadisus to be a mere figurehead, was already plotting when the last breath of Antipater was drawn. By the way, what, what is it with Antipater and getting on the bad side of ambitious Macedonian women? Like, it's just crazy. She was deeply concerned about the fact that she had no children with the deficient Philip Aridaeus, and Alexander IV would become the dominant king once he came of age. In addition, Polyperchon calling upon Olympias, who was ruthless in her protection of her children and grandchildren, probably concerned Eurydice about her and her husband's future survival. Cassander, sensing an opportunity to further frustrate Polyperchon, entered an alliance with Eurydice to cause havoc in Macedon. In the autumn of 317, she took control of an army to march to the border of Epirus, where Polyperchon was hiding out with Olympias. In an age where everything was turned upside down, this was also the first known war between two women, Olympias serving as the figurehead of the troops of Polyperchon, and Eurydice as the literal commander for the pro-Cassander forces, with Philip Aridaeus being dragged along for the ride. The two armies had camped near each other in the mountainous region lining Macedon and Epirus. From the one camp, a lone figure descended towards the forces of Eurydice. Dressed in the garb of a priestess, Olympias approached the camp of the Eurydice. With nary a stone cast nor a spear shattered, the soldiers all defected over to Olympias' side, refusing to fight against the mother of Alexander the Great. True to her ruthless nature, she captured both Eurydice and the long-suffering Philip Aridaeus, ordering them to be imprisoned and later executed. In addition, she took revenge against the family of Antipater, claiming justice in the name of Alexander's death. This was not to her credit, perhaps because it was shocking that a woman, often seen in the Greco-Macedonian world as being less prone to violence, could have had them killed or tortured. Granted, it was far less extreme than some of the other methods that the successors used, ranging from Cassander torching people alive to mass hangings and beheadings, but it may have certainly contributed to this. In an ironic twist, at the moment of her heightened power, she gave the excuse to cause her downfall. Cassander would not take this setback sitting down. He gathered his army in Greece and marched towards the city of Pydna, where Olympias and her court were holed up. Many of the soldiers in league with Polyperchon, unhappy with Olympias' executions, had transferred their sympathy to Cassander, and eventually would defect. Cassander managed to bypass the forces that were intended to stop him, achieving brilliant victories near the pass of Thermopylae, and took over much of Macedon. Besieging Pydna between 317 and 316, the garrison eventually gave out, and Olympias was captured. Paraded in a show trial, she was declared guilty of murder by the relatives of Antipater. Though the methods differ, both Justin and Diodorus claim she met her fate bravely, and by the end, the mother of Alexander the Great was slain. While all of this was going on in the west, Antigonus and Eumenes were having a final showdown in the east. 
In the summer of 318, Antigonus made his next campaign against the Greekling in a western Iran. Eumenes again was barely holding on to any of his army's loyalty, but he had an idea. As opposed to securing his troops' loyalties to the throne or to Polyperchon, instead he cleverly played to the memory of Alexander the Great. Setting up an empty chair with a replica of the armor of the king and the royal diadem placed upon it, he called to his assembled troops that Alexander appeared to him in a dream, alive and governing the empire. This was a good omen, indicating that Eumenes would be bolstered by the presence of the divine Alexander. The silver shields in particular were a favored unit of the former Basileos, and this was a good move to keep Eumenes in their good graces, and he would continue to conduct the operations of the war in the presence of, quote, Alexander, effectively creating a military cult. But it was not to last. Eumenes had tried to negotiate an alliance with the other satraps like Seleucus, but garnered little sympathy in the name of the king. Ptolemy was offering sanctuary and support in Egypt for anyone revolting from Eumenes and Polyperchon's camp. Eumenes spent 318 moving from place to place in the heartland of the Asian provinces, while Antigonus slowly but surely cut off support to Eumenes, where he secured naval supremacy over the waters against Polyperchon's forces. With word of Antigonus's marching on the Persian satrapy, Eumenes had little choice. He had to fight. Coming to blows with Antigonus in the Battle of Paratakene in 317, where the Antigonids would gain a victory with heavy losses. Eumenes would quickly try to compensate and would engage in another battle, this time hopefully gaining a decisive victory against the Antigonids. But, unknown to Eumenes, this one would be his last. What would be known as the Battle of Gabiin would take place in the winter of 317 in modern Iran. The army of Antigonus numbered somewhere around 22,000 heavy infantry, 9,000 cavalry, and 65 war elephants. Eumenes had more infantry, numbering around 33,000, but his cavalry was inferior in size, with only 6,000 horsemen and 114 elephants. The forces lined up, and then a horseman was sent from Eumenes' camp, bearing a message from the silver shields. Antigonus and the supporting Macedonians would all be punished in the name of the kings. The presence of the Silver Shields, the loyal guard of Philip and Alexander, were enough to cause the Antigonan forces to become panicked, and the Eumenean forces let out a great cry of joy, starting the battle. Eumenes sent forth his elephants and light infantry to screen the movement of his troops. This resultant movement kicked up a huge cloud of dust, and Antigonus turned it to his advantage. He had sent a squadron of cavalry to wheel around the right wing of the now obscured enemy line and captured the baggage train of the pro-Eumenes camp. Antigonus then charged his right wing towards Eumenes, who was stationed on his left. The cavalry of Eumenes tried fighting to decisively cut down Antigonus, but were too outnumbered and were forced back. The heavy infantry of Antigonus was not doing as well, suffering heavy losses and eventually defeat under the might of the silver shields. Things became rather confused, and both sides were forced to retreat under seemingly victorious auspices. The battle was ultimately inconclusive, with no side clearly the victor. What did make the ultimate decision was the fact that Antigonus managed to capture the baggage train of the troops, particularly that of the Silver Shields. With their wives, children, slaves, and treasure now in the hands of Antigonus' army, honor and loyalty to Eumenes was now secondary. The Silver Shields betrayed their commander, imprisoning him, 
and later brought before the victorious Antigonus to bargain for their property. Eumenes would later have his revenge, because Antigonus would order for the silver shields to be executed, with their commander burned alive, since they were not trustworthy, and the unit would be disbanded permanently. Antigonus considered whether to have Eumenes executed or not. His son Demetrius actually tried to bargain for his life, but the cries of vengeance of the army for his insolence was too strong. Antigonus placed Eumenes in a prison, depriving him of food and water for several days, before sending in a soldier to strangle the former secretary to death. The rise and fall of Eumenes of Cardia is extremely fascinating. It probably stems from the fact that we have such a vivid characterization for him from the likes of the biographers Plutarch or Cornelius Nepos, but Eumenes' loyalty to the memory of Alexander and to his kin is something to be admired. But it must be understood that Eumenes was also highly ambitious, which seems odd given the positive spin I've put to you about his motivations and beliefs. According to Plutarch, he waged war for power, and it was his refusal to accept a subordinate status to Antigonus that's what doomed him whereas he could have simply settled in the background in a comfortable position. But he continued to throw himself in the thick of it, backing the wrong side again and again, once with Perdiccas and lastly with Polyperchon. His identity of a Greek had certainly hindered him with the upper nobility of Macedon, but he managed to turn this handicap into an asset repeatedly, able to politically maneuver his way upwards under the pretension that he could not take power as a Greek subject, catching everyone off guard. He also became a supremely talented commander in general, using his highly intelligent mind to keep the loyalty of his army in check. Well, most of the time, anyways. Perhaps he should have been able to pick better friends. So, the second war of the Diadohoi was now over. Polyperkin was now hiding somewhere in Greece, Cassander was in control of Macedon, and Antigonus was now the undisputed lord of Asia. The family of Alexander the Great was shrinking by the day with Philip Aridaeus and Olympias now dead. Perdiccas, Craterus, and Antipater, the original triad of successors, those most poised to take control of the empire, were also all dead. Little made sense in the world of 316 BC, and it would continue to change quickly. So, it is here we will end the episode. But, it would not be the end to the wars of the Diadohoi. Thank you all for waiting and listening. I'm really sorry about the delay on this episode. Grad school has been a bit crazy, so this is going to be the only release for the month. The wars of the Diadohoi are long and complicated, and this episode is really packed in terms of content with events and names that just add up. If you go to the podcast website at www.hellenisticagepodcast.wordpress.com and check the page for this episode, you'll find a useful who's who and all the resources used, along with any maps or diagrams that you find useful. If you like this episode and want to hear more, you can listen to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And I'm also on Twitter at HellenisticPOD, that's all one word, and all of these links will be provided in the show notes. So, thanks for waiting. And happy Halloween to all my listeners. You've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>